Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. Who do we have for you on today's episode? A true well-being rebel and friend, Erin Hallett. Erin is an experienced higher education alumni relations and external relations senior leader with a diverse background that includes private, public and not-for-profit roles. Skilled at developing strategies that develop lifelong mutually beneficial relationships that result in philanthropic support. She is a proven leader committed to developing high-performing and healthy teams and a powerful mental health advocate with a specific interest in mental health and well-being in the workplace. She was also a pioneer in the Pioneer Programme at Zinc, which focused on accelerating the impact of individuals who want to improve mental health in society. Erin was named a role model by the Mental Health Action Group Inside Out as a senior workplace leader championing mental health issues in the workplace. She's a genuine people person and has a zest for life that shines through in the way that she speaks and the work that she does. She is someone in my life that so readily transitioned from work contact to friend. In this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, I talked to Erin about how we manage or rather how we should manage executive burnouts that we see going on all around us in the world today. Her research, knowledge and experience take us through her view on how businesses, colleagues and people in general can be more aware and prepared to deal with executive burnouts from their employees, peers, friends and family, or even their own. It's a critical episode for anyone who considers themselves a well-being rebel and one I can't wait to share with you. Let's dive in. Erin, thank you so much for joining us on the Wellbeing Rebellion. Lovely to have you here. Uh-huh. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so honestly honored to be here and part of this with you. Oh, thank you. Um, I know you and I, we have spoken many times over the years about the topic of mental health and well-being, and I know we share a lot in common. So I can't think of anyone better place to discuss this topic of management executive burnout than you. I know you've had experiences with such things in the past, but could you tell our audience who don't know you perhaps what experience you have had with poor mental health in the past? Yeah, thank you so much. And I want to thank you really for bringing more focus to this important topic, because I think the more, as we've talked about before, the more we talk about this, the better it is. So, you know, I probably have had anxiety disorder since I was a kid. There was no Dr. Google and it wasn't really a thing back in the early 80s. So it wasn't until I hit my 30s that I really started to feel it and really have it impact my life and impact my life at work. And I would never From where I'm sitting, I haven't really had much experience with work, what I would say being the cause. It's sort of all the other noise that gets in the way and me not necessarily knowing how to ask for help or waiting too long. So when I moved to the UK about seven years ago, I had a panic attack at work really publicly, like, you know, sort of in the middle of the office, quite dramatic. And of course, I thought it was a heart attack. Um, And I ended up in A&E pretty quickly, as you should do when you don't know something like that. And the doctor there, they did all the tests and then said, you know, listen, this is anxiety. Um, You know, let's talk about what's happening in your life. And 
at that time, I was working, you know, in a pretty high level job, Imperial College in London. And I had to make a decision whether or not to tell my team the truth, because my team knew I was at A&E. And they were really worried, which was lovely. And I didn't want to, didn't want to lie, but I also was worried about how I was going to look as their leader, as somebody ringing up from A&E and saying, the good news is it's not a heart attack, but I'm having a mental health problem. I did decide to tell them. And that started this journey, you know, part of the journey I'm here with you now and talking about mental health at work, my anxiety, and also how you can be a leader who's open about it and still be really successful in your job and be really ambitious and do big, scary things. And then since then, yeah, that's just become part of my leadership style and how I am everywhere, which is good. Really, really positive. A lot of people don't believe that you can have both of those things be true because leadership is a demonstration of strength, surely. And therefore, to admit any kind of frailty or weakness, such as mental ill health or propensity for it, even struggling with stress, is a sign of weakness which will make your employees feel less confident about your leadership. That is a commonly held belief, whether consciously or subconsciously. We feel like, even as parents, that you have to demonstrate strength and not to crumble so that the people who are following you, your kids, have confidence. So how did your team react when you said, yeah, it's not a heart attack, it's stress? Yeah, I think... I had different reactions. I certainly had a lot of support and I would say empathy, because I think that's a better word for describing it, from my director and the senior leadership at the school. My team, they were supportive, but like you were saying, I don't think they really knew what that meant for me as a leader, for them as a team, how that changed the dynamics between how I would lead the team or how they saw me going forward. So how I sort of managed that was being as open as possible to the point where I was really comfortable talking about, like, this is something that is part of me having any other long-term health condition, you know, whether you have skin rashes that flare up and like asthma, any of those things that I mostly manage, but some days it's tougher than others and I'm going to need more support. And this is different for everyone. And I appreciate that anxiety on the scheme of mental health sometimes isn't as serious or debilitating, depending on where you are. Once I started talking about it, it became easier to manage at work because I could put it in the context and I could set boundaries. I really believe in life generally that unless you're honest with people about whatever it is, they can't help you. So telling my team in a way empowered both of them, like they empowered them and it empowered me to get that help and to have those conversations. And it also gave Imperial the opportunity to step up and say, we support leaders like this. We want to hear more from leaders like this and ended up being, you know, one of the best parts of my career. And I was recognized for it from my colleagues for being somebody who spoke out about it. Like that's what I became known for at Imperial, probably more than the work I did in my day-to-day job, which is really cool and something I'm so, so proud of. And I'm proud of the team too, because I never challenged, I don't want to say authority, but they still accepted my leadership. I guess that's a better way of putting it. They went forward on that journey with me. See, it is possible. We keep talking about it. It is possible to do. You just have to do it in a certain way 
And that key is that openness and honesty and the fact that communication is a two-way street. So if they've got questions about it, they can speak to you about it. That's essential. Oh, thank you for that. I don't know if you've had experience in either your career before you came to the UK or since of experiencing executive burnout, either for yourself or someone in your work that you've worked with or for or who's worked for you. Have you experienced it or someone close to you experienced it? I think, you know, the the anxiety attack at Imperial was, was close. I think what I've been going through in my current role, and you know, I've talked about this, there's been a lot of unforeseen challenges I've experienced. And it's the closest I've come for me personally to taking some time away to thinking, actually, I do need to reprioritize what's important to me professionally, personally. I need to reset some boundaries. I need to change maybe some of my leadership style so I don't get to that point. Because for me, in my personal experience, it's things sort of waking up in the morning and feeling unwell about going to work or feeling that dread. It's not sleeping. It's not feeling like I could complete anything or accomplish anything. And to me, and I appreciate this as a difficult distinction, that's a lot different to me than my anxiety. You know, my anxiety, as I said, was quite related to other stuff. It's just part of who I am. But what I've been experiencing the last little while has been more along the lines of really closely linked to work and some of the challenges I've had. So that's where I'm at and how to manage those things and to stay well and to still be able to lead during that. It's really important. Is it because you've had such experience with managing your own anxiety, you've sought lots of support for that, that you were able to consciously make the decision to step away to avoid fully burning out? A hundred percent. And I think this is a big opportunity and miss for individuals and organizations. I always say to people, I am very lucky. One to be in the position I am and to not be afraid to speak out about my struggles, right? Like I am senior in my career. I work at organizations that are generally known for having that level of support and at least on paper saying they're okay with those things, like whether or not that's true, but generally like there's procedures in place to protect. I also, as you said, I have a really good understanding, maybe too much of an understanding of what those things look like and how to recognize those, but that's not everyone's experiences. And I feel, yes, for me, relatively easy to flick the switch and say, okay, I need help. I need boundaries. I need to talk to more people. I need to talk to my boss. But for people who are experiencing it for the first time and get down that road before really understanding what's happening, I think there needs to be more pathways or supports in between because my experience watching other people go through similar things at all levels it's almost too late when they get to that place and then you see the you know what i would say burnout burnout where they're off work and their confidence is shot and they take some longer to recover and it's more costly to them personally professionally and to the organization because there hasn't been those supports in place it's hard to ask for help (laughs) like And that is my issue with a lot of the mental health support that is currently available in the majority of organizations. The onus is on the person who is already unwell to have the headspace, foresight, insight 
to say, I need help. And like you said, most of the time, by the time they recognize, I don't think I can cope with this on my own, it's too late. The damage has been done. It's too late. And it becomes 10 times as hard to reach them. So what could organizations do to better support those kinds of people who are prone or at risk to burning out or struggling, whether it's because of work, and we talk about this in the burnout sense, or if they're going through something dramatic in their personal life that has no option but to impact on the work, so such as your anxiety panic attack in your first workplace, what can they do? I mean, I think what you said is exactly right. You walk into any organization now and it's like, here, we have mental health first aiders or here, we have this training course. But I personally would like to see across all levels as part of induction and onboarding, like a conversation around mental health, mental health support from the get-go, much in the same way you talk about setting up your computer or your printer. So we start to normalize that. I'd like to see signposting in staff kitchens and staff toilets, making these things less hidden and something you have to seek out when you're in a really bad place. I'd love to see training for leaders, especially, that is a bit beyond, like, you can't expect a leader to be a therapist. That's not fair. And leaders have a lot of their own stuff going on, both work and personal, as you said. So I'd like to see additional training. And, you know, I know you're really involved with that and bringing that helping leaders feel supported and creating spaces for them to engage with other leaders that are facing the same things. Because I think we all know coming out of COVID, a lot of what we do now is like you're having those conversations that we weren't equipped to have even five years ago. You can't just jump on a call with somebody and be like, okay, did you do X, X, X? It's not right. It's important to engage with them about their personal life, how they're feeling, what they did for the weekend. And I think That's the other thing that organizations generally need to do. You need to ask questions. You need not to be afraid to ask someone how they are. You need not to be afraid to ask the second question if you can see that there's something wrong. Like, it's okay. You're not responsible for their overall mental health, but we are responsible for making sure organizations, leaders, workplaces are supportive and helping those people get the support they need. It is holistic and in the truest sense. I think where people get tripped up is that they think, if I just ask my employees occasionally, you know, how are you? No, really, how are you? If I offer to make them cups of tea, if I do those things and let them know that my door is always open, that that will mean that they feel comfortable or that phrase psychologically safe enough to come and talk to me when they need me. And sadly, It's much bigger than that. It's holistic, as you said, because it's all about having a culture that genuinely it means what it says. So if it says we care about you, it means we value you as a human. We know you need certain things and we want to provide them to you because we care about you. And it's not just managers. You need to start asking your employees and your direct reports three times a week how they are and do it with feeling but then don't act on it, but just do it with feeling. Yeah. Uh, And that's my thing is like cultures have to be supportive. Otherwise the manager does this, doesn't know what to do with it. And the employees see right through it and it becomes the new, how are you? I'm fine. It's meaningless. 
Yeah, it's a tick box exercise, right? Like when you do your annual report or your annual review sometimes. I think my other bugbear about this topic is thinking that throwing a yoga class in the middle of a workday is like what is going to support everyone's mental health. Like, I don't know about you, but at the times of my life when I've been feeling at my worst, the last thing I want to do is do yoga or take a deep breath or walk around the block. And I appreciate there's so many complexities, but it's not that simple. And what works for me isn't going to work for you or for somebody on my team or for my line manager. Like, and it depends on the day. Like when I've been really unwell, like really, I just want to stay in bed. It doesn't mean I never won't walk around the block. But if you'd said to me, oh, please take a yoga class, that'll help you over your lunch break. I mean, come on. I think we do it because it's easy and it's less involved. It's It costs a bit of money, but not too much. And it takes a little bit of time, but not too much. And then it looks like it should work. So when it doesn't, we can blame the victim for well, there was a yoga class and you didn't go or you went, but you didn't really get involved. And therefore it's an easy solution rather than saying, okay, this person actually needs talk therapy or medical treatment and advice, blah, blah, blah. That's harder to do. And it's not so tick off the list doable. So I think that's why it happens. And listen, I do yoga three times a week. I'm not denigrating yoga. I love me some downward dog. I do take that as you will. Yeah, nothing better than that good morning stretch. But I do it more as a preventative measure than a reparative one. Because like you said, if I'm already that far down the rabbit hole, asking me to get into whatever position to... <laughs> A warrior? You ask you to do like warrior, a warrior. That's yeah. it. The warrior. <laughs> yeah, totally. warrior too. Don't do the do warrior. It. I'm not. I, I have no interest yeah. in that. I know. You're lucky that I'm standing upright right now. And I think I'm, I know I'm going a bit off topic, but I think the other thing too is there is a lot of pressure right now on leaders to be technically brilliant at their job. So, you know, I know how to do X, X and write the strategy and execute the strategy, but also to be empathetic, intentional, um, which is great, but that's not necessarily the most natural leadership style for a lot of people. And it is intentional. You have to be intentional. You have to have support from your organization. Your organization should be providing that support. That is more than, you know, a 1-800 employee assistance number. It's not good enough anymore. So what is it that you could recommend that our employers and managers do then in place of the EAP 0800 numbers? I don't want to get rid of those. Let me say, I think it's really important and I've benefited from it myself, like even several times this last year. Oh yeah, I've used everything. I've used mental health first aiders. I accessed, Cambridge has brilliant university counselors that I've just finished six months with. I've done mentors, but again, I know, I know the value. I know how to access, I know the language. I really feel that it starts even in the interview process. So when you're interviewing your leaders, asking questions about EQ, emotional intelligence, leadership style, and then making sure that is part of the induction. And also being transparent about culture, culture challenges. What is the culture in this organization? Where do we want to move to? Here's how we're going to help you do it. Here's how we're going to help you support that. 
Because again, like anybody, you can't succeed if you don't have the information, right? And you can't support even more importantly, if you don't have that information. So I do think those conversations need to start. Like if you want to hire a leader, a good leader now, they need to be emotionally intelligent and responsible. So that those questions beyond like, what is your most challenging situation need to be part of the interview process. I think that's true. The reason why we're challenged when we come to discuss managers managing their employees' well-being is because of the reasons that managers were traditionally put in posts had nothing to do with how good they were with people, but how good they were at their functions. That's always been the case. The star performer on the team gets promoted to team lead. Makes sense, right? If he's done it for himself, then he can help others to do it. But that's just not how we as humans operate. Until we start also as a society valuing soft skills as much as we do the harder stuff, the more technical abilities, we'll always have this gaping chasm between what we require of our managers and what they are able to give us unless we close it. And you close it through hiring people to come and support your line managers with external coaching training like we do. Yeah, exactly. The coaching, I mean, I would be lost without people like yourself and it is important and it gives the manager that safe space to talk through, to even role play some of the situations, right? Which I think for me in my career has been huge and trying to manage some of those stressful situations. Every time I say to clients, lucky you, today we're going to do some role playing of these difficult scenarios, I can audibly hear the wretch coming up in their throat and I can see their butt cheeks clapping shut because <laughs> it is terrifying and I have to admit I bloody hate role play myself I which is odd because people say I'm very dramatic <laughs> whatever oh, come yeah on. you know what I mean they don't know me you don't yeah. know me but but generally <laughs> so rude but generally I hate it because it's like it's pretending it's awkward but the benefit in trying out these scenarios where in a risk-free environment with people that you trust who are also embarrassing themselves by doing this and you realize, okay, it's not as straightforward as I thought. It's not necessarily as easy as I think. It's so valuable. It's so valuable. And like, even, I don't know about you, but one thing like has really helped me is like, I will write scripts of difficult conversations and I may not exactly follow them, but at least... I mean, maybe I like to be a little overly prepared, but it does give you a chance to think about it, like soften your language if you need to, consider how it might land by reading it out loud. And like, that's probably been in the last few years, one of the most effective leadership tools that's worked for me. And I also feel prepared most of the time, which for me and my anxiety is a good thing, right? Like that's helpful. But having a coach to then say, okay, here's my script. Like, let's talk this through, get feedback, say it out loud. (laughs) Speaking of saying things out loud, you believe about speaking out on mental health helps empower employees to bring their whole selves to work, which is one of those phrases that we trot out a lot now, but it matters and it does what it says on the tin about being comfortable to be who they are in the workplace. And it helps to create a culture where they can get help when and if they need it. Do you think that 
nowadays businesses and employers are more equipped and aware of how to deal with difficult situations with their employees or that their employees are going through personally? I think yes and no. I think COVID accelerated that in good and bad ways. It brought a lot of things to the surface, but I think organizations are still scrambling and we still don't really know the long-term impact of what that's going to be. Organizations are relying on whether it's two people, 10 people, 40 people in the organization who are comfortable in those spaces, comfortable speaking out to set the tone. And that's quite a burden in a way for those individuals to carry. I think like we've talked about, like we are seeing mental health first aiders, the employee assistance line, access to counseling. There's some great stuff in the AI space with the apps and all that stuff, yoga classes. I just did a step challenge here, things like that. But I still think it's not super coordinated. And a lot of it is reactionary instead of strategic because we are still reacting to COVID in a way. So yeah, you are looking at finding your advocates, which I don't think is a bad way to go. But then it's how do you support those advocates to make sure they don't have burnout? That's often the missing piece of the puzzle, completely. We've got 20 mental health first aiders for a staff populations of 2,000 people. Well, then you've not got enough. And everybody who does go to those 20 is putting another bit of their pressure on someone whose job it isn't, who has no clinical supervision or any even group reflective practice to offload the burden of finding out that Sandra has been sleeping with her husband's brother for the last three years, is now pregnant and doesn't know who the father of the child is. What are you supposed to do with that? I mean... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, how are you supposed to carry that and then not let that impact your personal life, your professional life, right? And your working relationship with Sandra. Because that's the other thing. It's like, we can't help, like, everyone, no matter how senior they are, we're human beings. So you can be as professional as you want and as emotionally intelligent as you think you are, but those things add up, right? Those things weigh on you. Like we have biases, like, you know, no one's perfect. And yeah, it's, it's really challenging. And I think it's also empowering to a degree, like, you know, mental health, I think it's mental health awareness week or month coming up, something's happening and it's anxiety is the topic. So I'm getting a lot of requests right now to do stuff at work. And I'm having to say no, because I know personally right now. Good on you. I know, right? Good I'm super you. proud of yes. myself. I mean, to you be fair, be. I said I said yes once and then retracted. But I really had to take <laughs> a step back and be like, actually, this isn't good for my mental health. You know, I'm going through a bit of a mm-hmm. career transition. This isn't, I can't right now. Like, it doesn't make me a bad advocate or a bad leader. But it, I need to recognize sometimes you know, it's not the best thing for me at this time. And I can support people in other ways. And I'll still be, you know, happy to chat with people or be talking about it on LinkedIn. And I still believe I walk the walk and talk the talk. But you do need to say no sometimes, right? It's saying no and managing to do so without carrying guilt around with you like a lead balloon. Yeah. (laughs) And not saying sorry 50 million times, which, you know, it doesn't help because of the Canadian thing. Yeah, I was going to say, knowing you, you probably did. (laughs) apologize for the inconvenience, blah, blah, blah. But we all do it because that's the kind of people the helpers are. The people who have, this sounds so poetic, so dramatic, but the people who've known pain and suffering, for instance, the pain and suffering of having a 
nervous or mental breakdown. We're the ones who desperately don't want other people to experience that pain and therefore will do everything in our power to help promote good mental well-being, even when it's poor for our own mental well-being. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And you know, like, I'm sure like with you, like the older you get, you know, like you can see the things stacking up to get you to that place of potential burnout or being really miserable. And yeah, you still do it. Like, it's very hard, as you said, when you see somebody going through something and experiencing the lessons you had to go through and learn in a really tough way to take a step back. So how do you prevent yourself from going back down that road? So, I mean, again... I am increasingly senior, so I have a little more autonomy, but it's still really hard to set boundaries. So one thing, you know, the role I'm in now, I came into, and I love being a collaborative leader. I love being transparent. You know, all those things are so fundamental to my leadership style. And I started to have to make adjustments, and those adjustments were made so I could sort of create boundaries. And I know we talk a lot about boundaries and you know, in the same way we throw that word away. But if you're being intentional about them, I think they can really support you getting to that negative place. So, you know, I do things like I will not meet with you before 9am because I need to have a slow start to my day. Like I will meet with people, externals or my line manager, but generally 9am is when I start because I want to do yoga, strangely enough, in the morning before I come to work. Recognizing that changing my leadership style doesn't make me a bad leader, if that makes sense. So understanding that because it worked one way in one situation, that maybe changing up a little isn't, you know, the worst idea or it doesn't make me a terrible person. I said I got a lot of support this year from mentors, coaches, therapists, like reaching out, trying to cover every angle and putting that in my diary, being transparent about it in my diary so everyone knew where I was, but also making that a non-negotiable. Realizing and giving myself permission to be 80%, 70%, 50% some days, if that's the best, because I was always doing my best, but sometimes 100 just wasn't reasonable or possible. And I think for me, the biggest thing I've learned is treating yourself the way you would treat someone on your team who's struggling. So if they come to me and say, I'm having a a problem right now, I'm struggling. And I say, okay, why don't we make these amendments? Have you thought about this? I need to do that for myself, right? Why would I not give myself that same grace, that same advice, that same space? I, I would never talk to anybody, whether they're a teammate, a friend, family, the way I sometimes treat myself or have the expectations on myself. So again, being intentional. But it's exhausting being intentional all the time. And I do make huge mistakes. You know, when I arrived home at Christmas, I went home to Canada at Christmas. I went to bed for two weeks. Like I got COVID and I did not get out of bed. Like I wasn't interested in having like real conversations. I just wanted to lay in bed and watch Netflix. So like that was not a good place to get to. And then since coming back to the UK in January, I've had to be really intentional and sort of up all those things so that doesn't happen again to where I am now, which is a good place. But I think it's so important that you do it and you don't feel guilty about it. It's the same analogy I keep using. You cannot pour from an empty cup. So you're actually doing other people a disservice if you don't look after yourself, because how can you be the leader that you need to be if you aren't protecting your own health and well-being? 
Yeah, but then that goes back. I mean, what we talked about at the beginning, like the strength piece, like you want to look or come across as being strong and not just strong, but like, you know, the direction you're going. And it's hard when things start to go a bit off that path and you have to make adjustments and explain things are course correct for lack of a better description. Like I haven't felt as strong as I've wanted to feel. And that's been humbling and tough. It's like, to come to those realizations, but also to realize like, yeah, it doesn't make me a bad leader. So what advice would you give to any of our audience who are recognizing some of these signs of, let's say, burnout or overwork in themselves or in someone that they work with or love? What would you recommend the first thing they do is? I would say asking for help, whether that's from, like, doesn't have to be from your workplace. It can be your friends, your family members, partner, whoever but starting to have that conversation. I'm not doing well right now. Like I need some support. Even if you don't know what that support looks like, I think setting some boundaries, even if they're small boundaries, like not starting your day before a certain time, blocking out lunch, those things can add up. Like just when you start like exercising 10 minutes a day, I think that's really important. Saying no to things that aren't essential. I think we end up as leaders in a lot of things that, you know, you just go to these meetings because you're supposed to be there, but starting to challenge that and say, actually, I need that time. Do I have to be there? A lot of the time you'll be surprised. And I think recognizing within yourself, even if you do it quietly, like saying, whispering, like, it's okay not to be okay. I am doing my best. Right. And realizing it's not necessarily catastrophic. It can go up and down. And this is just a moment in time. It doesn't define you as an individual, as a leader, doesn't define your ambition or success. You know, you can be massively successful and massively ambitious and still struggle, right? Like, we just need to talk about that more. Like, I've had some of my worst panic attacks on big international trips, right? Where I'd be in a hotel room covered in sweat, like nauseous, and then half an hour later doing what I'm supposed to be doing in terms of my job. Like one doesn't cancel out the other. I love that. Thank you so much. And finally, before I have to let you go. I'm sorry. I know, but you're a busy lady with a very important job and Cambridge (laughs) would never forgive me. I I just want to ask you one question, which is, as a fellow well-being rebel, what's one thing that you would change when it comes to workplace well-being? One one addition you'd like to see implemented? Oh, that is a big question. I think what we talked about earlier, I want to see intentional hiring for leaders. I want to see those questions, screening, whatever you want to call it at the interview process, because then I think that can impact culture change. I think if you bring the right people to lead your organization who have that, even if maybe not the awareness right away, but the commitment and the willingness that will have a lasting change on like generations of employees and culture. From your lips to God's ears. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Erin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I'm super excited. We'll have to catch up and let you know how it goes. I can't wait. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes, and generally show us some love. 
We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.